Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. Oh God, we pray that you would speak. We are desperate for a word from you, oh God. We pray, oh God, that by your spirit, you would now open up hearts and minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So I, we're just gonna, we're gonna, I don't see anything on this screen here. All right. We, uh, we are going to just give this a go again. I did just as uh, to kill some time, because I try to figure this out. I did switch my carrier yesterday to uh, T-Mobile. And look, T-Mobile has come through for us. <laughs> I switched my carrier because AT&T has no service in Sierra Madre. But T-Mobile does, it turns out. So after 20 years, I have switched over to the dark side. <laughs> or maybe Verizon is the dark side. I don't know. So this week, while I was in the middle of preparing for a message on conflict within the community of faith, I received a call from a friend of mine who was in distress because her best friend of 30 years, who was more on the progressive left, and her husband, who is a pretty strong conservative, had stopped speaking to each other. And the reason was because of a Facebook post. Uh, her friend, the progressive, had posted something on Facebook, uh, encouraging friends to vote no on the recall. And her husband, against any discretionary caution that my wife would have issued, uh, decided to post something in response to that on her Facebook page. And then that erupted in a little conflict between the two of them. And now she's worried because this friend of hers that they have grown up together. They've raised their kids together. They love each other. Their families have spent time together. And now they are at risk of losing one another. And I just wondered, as I was listening to that story, how many of you have lost somebody in this last year? And you haven't lost somebody to COVID or to sickness. You have lost somebody to the political conflict that exists within the culture we inhabit. Maybe it was a roommate, maybe it was a friend or a sibling, a parent or a child, but you are no longer on speaking terms anymore because of the toxic political climate in which we inhabit. And because maybe, for better or for worse, you got engaged in something and it in interrupted in a radical problem within that relationship. Later that same night, I was listening to a discussion with a very well-known Christian ethicist and philosopher named Stanley Hauerwas, and he was being asked a question about some comments that he had made uh, last week uh, for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and he had been speaking, and he had, he had been in dialogue with a friend of his, and he had asked his friend, you know, he said, here's what I shared. He said, what would have you shared? And it turns out that his friend was a British pastor and theologian named Sam Wells, and he said this. He said, in 2001, Americans knew who their enemies were. It was the terrorists. Today, it is one another. And that comment struck me, and I wrote it down. And I think what concerns me right now, I think, for the church, for the evangelical church in America, is more and more, it seems like the same differences and the same divisions that are existing within our culture are surfacing within our churches. 
And churches are being pulled apart, not over theological issues, but over issues that are much more related to political ideology. And it is my concern for us as a church that our center, as we looked at last week, would be Jesus Christ that we would rally around the reality that is broken into the world in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that the one who has torn down every wall of hostility between us would be the very one that we rally around and that we champion and that we lock arms together and we follow with each other. That's our desire. That is our heart. But the question we're asking today is, okay, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, can, I can get on that program, but what do we do with our differences? We have legitimate theological and cultural and political and ideological and all sorts of differences that exist among us. You know, we are a multi-generational congregation, and so there are generational differences, and, and there are, are differences as it relates to how we view the church and, and how, we, how we think about different, you know, Christian liberty issues, and there's all kinds of differences that exist among us. And so the question is, is how can we be a church that exists with difference? Now, notice, I'm not asking how can we be a church that works toward uniformity and homogeneity? That is not the church Jesus is trying to gather around himself. Jesus is gathering a diverse community of people. And the power of the gospel is not that it unites a group of people who would be united over because we all dress the same, because we all look the same, because we all vote the same, because we all think the same. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is it brings together different people around something that is more important than our differences, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what does that look like in practice? How can we live into that as a community? And that's the question we're wrestling with today. And to help us wrestle with this question, I want to invite you to turn with me to to Romans chapter 14, because this is the issue that the Apostle Paul was dealing with in the church in Rome. Differences that exist in congregations is not a new thing. It, It existed from the very beginning. Uh, Divisions in church life, conflict in church life is not by any means a new issue. It has been around for a very, very long time. And the church in the New Testament was always dealing with differences and always dealing with conflicts. And as you open up the pages of the New Testament, you know, sometimes we say, oh, you know, we need to get back to the New Testament church, as if the New Testament church was some idyllic, perfect place. Have you read the, the, you know, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth? The church in the first century was not, by any stretch of the imagination, perfect or idyllic. They had issues like we have issues. And here, Paul deals with the issue of difference and division within the church. And so what we're going to do today is I want to just spend a little bit of time talking about the backstory and kind of the differences that existed then. And then I want you to see three ways in which Paul calls us to respond to the differences among us. So let's, let's talk together about the differences by noting them in 1 Corinthians, or Romans 14, verses 1 and 2. Look at what it says. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables, and uh, the carnivores say amen. So on a surface level, 
it looks like there's an issue at stake in the church, at play in the church, between people who eat meat and people who eat vegetables. And so the, the divisions, the differences in the church revolved around one of the most fundamental things we do in day-to-day life, namely the stuff we eat. But not just the stuff we eat, but how we order and observe and celebrate time. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in their own mind. And so he's, what he's talking about are people who have differences of opinion regarding food, but also regarding days. Perhaps he's talking about Jewish festivals, uh, their holidays and their feast days, or maybe their Sabbath days. But the point is, is that there's some division in the church. There's differences of opinion revolving around food and days. Now, I think what's going on below the surface is this is a legitimate cultural and actually biblical interpretive difference. You see, in the church in Rome, there were two types of Christians, basically. On the one hand, there were uh, those Christians who came from a Jewish background and Jewish heritage. And if you think about it, if, if you grew up in a Jewish home in the first century, you grew up in a home that knew who you were and what you were about. You were culturally distinct from the surrounding pagans around you. And one of the most distinguishing features that set you apart from your neighbors was your diet. And so Jews in the first century, like many Jews today, ate kosher. And so they observed these kosher laws. And it was likely the case that in a city like Rome, uh, where the only place you could get meat was in a pagan marketplace, that they would be unsure whether or not the meat they purchased would be kosher. And so many Jewish Christians who wanted to maintain kind of these kosher practices, they would refrain from eating meat at all. Not only that, would they uh, eat, eat meat, but uh, if you were a Jew and you grew up in the first century, you grew up generation after generation. I mean, literally for hundreds of years, uh, one of the defining characteristics of your heritage, of your background, of your faith was that you observed Sabbath. It was a part of your weekly rhythm, of your family's weekly rhythm, of their parents' weekly rhythm, of their parents' parents' weekly rhythm, and so on and so forth, going all the way back. And of course, you had your traditional holidays. Every year, you would have Passover, or the Feast of Booths, or uh, Tabernacles. And, 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 and there was all kinds of different holidays and festivals that all marked you off. It's like, this is my culture, and this is my heritage, and this is what my family does. And then there was another group in the first century city of Rome who were of pagan background. And for their whole life, they had never eaten kosher, nor did they care about it. They went into the marketplace and they ate whatever they wanted. And they didn't observe Sabbath and they didn't practice all these Jewish holidays. It just wasn't a part of their culture and their heritage. And then one day, a guy walks into the city and he starts announcing this good news that the Jewish Messiah has defeated the power of sin, death, and darkness, and that any one of them, whether they're Jew or Gentile, could enter into a relationship with God through faith in the Jewish Messiah. And so Jews heard this news, and they responded in faith in Jesus. And Gentiles heard this news, and they responded in faith in Jesus. But when they came into the church together, both with faith in Jesus, they came out of radically different cultural backgrounds. And one set thought, like, from their culture, their background and heritage, like, look, um, real followers of God 
If I'm gonna be a person of faith, I mean, my whole life I've associated my faith and trust in God with observance of Sabbath, with Jewish holidays, and with the diet I ate. And these were all very important to my faith. It was a way I honored God. And after they came to faith in Jesus, they just couldn't shake that. I mean, it was entrenched. I mean, how many of you grew up with cultural habits and practices from your family of origin that are just entrenched? All of you have. And this was the Jews in the first century who came to faith in Jesus. Of course, the Gentiles didn't. And so this created a a, a division in the church. And there was one side, side A we'll call them, who observed special food and days and felt like it was an important part of a life of faith, even faith in Jesus. And the other side, we'll call them side B, said, no, you could uh, eat any food and you could observe any days. And this difference of opinion in the church created issues because uh, each group began to judge and look down with disdain on the other group. Could you imagine that? Two groups of people who have different opinions, one thinks they're right, the other thinks they're wrong, and then one group looks down and judges the other person. Of course, this is not a new issue, is it? This happens all the time. It happens here at Christ Church. Now, before we move on from the situation, I just want to point out that this was no small issue, not, not for the Jews, at any rate, who came to faith in Jesus the Messiah. You see, for them, it was a Bible issue. It wasn't just that their parents and their grandparents and their parents' parents and so on and so forth uh, observed Sabbath and practiced kosher laws. It was that the Bible commanded them to do that. And so they thought, like, this, was, this is how I obey God, was doing these things. And so it was a very significant and important issue. You know, sometimes we, we think about these issues as just a, a very small, lightweight issue. You know, there was days and holidays and foods and, and other Christians that felt free to throw those things off, and why can't they just get over it? But they just couldn't get over it. It, was, it had to do with how they interpreted the Bible. It had to do with how they grew up and, and how, they, um, how, they, how they practiced their faith in God. And so the question is, is how does Paul command them and us to deal with these kind of substantial Big differences among us. And this is what Paul does in this text. And I want you to see right off the bat how he doesn't deal with the problem. I want you to see, on the one hand, he doesn't categorize and demonize like like what we talked about last week. He doesn't say, look, side A is good and side A is evil. And so let's attack and criticize those people. He doesn't categorize and demonize, but on the other hand, he doesn't relativize. Paul, as it stands, as you read through the rest of the text, actually thinks there is a right and wrong when it comes to this issue. He doesn't think it's necessary for Christians to keep kosher laws and to observe the Jewish holidays. Now, he doesn't think that it's a bad thing if somebody does that. He just doesn't think it makes them any closer to God or any more a part of the family of God. He thinks everybody can be a part of the family of God through faith alone in Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so he doesn't categorize, but on the other hand, he doesn't relativize. He doesn't say, look, we're all right. You know, let's just be tolerant of one another. And tolerance is just not the answer. You know, the the people who who profess tolerance in our culture say the only way we can live with each other is we must all agree on the same truth, you know? Um, But listen, if you're intolerant of intolerant people, you know what that makes you? 
intolerant. And if you're judgmental of judgmental people, what does that make you? Judgmental. So, uh, you know, tolerance is not the answer. Relativism is not the answer. And so we can't categorize, we can't relativize. But instead, he teaches us a third way of being with each other that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus. And this is beautiful. And he invites us to commit together to a way that is marked by three things. He's inviting us, when we face differences among us, to make three commitments. So can you make these three commitments with me? You don't even know what they are, do you? (laughs) You're like, I don't know. Let's see. First commitment that he tells us we need to make when there's differences among us is he says, you need to make a commitment to stop judging each other. Look at what he says in the text, verse 3. Let not the weak one who, who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So he says, look, commit yourself to stop judging each other. And there's a logic to this. Paul says, don't judge each other. You know why? Well, number one, because that job of judging other Christians is way beyond your pay grade. He doesn't exactly say that, but he says something like that. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and you are not his master. And he'll be upheld because the Lord is able to make him stand. You know, you could draw out, you know, the, the org chart in the kingdom of God, something like this. At the top of the org chart is the crucified and risen Jesus, in whom has been vested all authority in heaven on earth. And then underneath Jesus are all of his servants. This is the org chart in the family of God. Now, of course, we could break this down into smaller things. We could say, well, in our, in our little worldly lives here, we've got you know, little org charts. But look, relative to this org chart of the kingdom of God, those little org charts are really insignificant. But here's the key point about the org chart. There is one master on the org chart, and it's not you. Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on another one's servant? That job is way above your pay grade. You know, so often we think that we are in a place of judging other people because we can see all, we know all, and you don't. But listen, the only one who is omniscient, who knows all, and who is all-seeing is God, and it's not us. God has entrusted all authority to judge in the hands of Jesus, and Jesus is more than up for that task, amen? Amen. And so we can release control of the, the, the job of judging to other people. It's way above our pay grade. But secondly, it's not only way above your pay grade, but Paul wants us to see is that very often the subjects where we render judgment are way more complicated than we think. And it's interesting, Paul kind of complicates, he complexifies the whole situation. He's like, look, you know, you think like this is a right or a wrong issue. Either, you know, you're eating meat and you're observing days or you're not and, uh, you know, and it's either this or that. But Paul says the situation is more complex. Look at what he says. He says, actually, one person esteems one day as better than another, true, while another esteems all days alike, each one, he says, should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives God thanks, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives God thanks. It's interesting, isn't it? That actually the Jewish Christian who is abstaining and the Jewish Christian who is observing Sabbath and holidays can actually do that, even though it's unnecessary, they can do that in a way that honors Christ. And the person who doesn't observe the holidays and who doesn't observe the kosher laws can also do that in honor of Christ. It seems there's multiple expressions of faithfulness. And he goes on. He says, look, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The point is... We exist for Jesus to bring honor and glory to Jesus. And in our own hearts and lives, there are different ways in which we process what it looks like to bring honor to Jesus. And so he says, look, the situation isn't necessarily one that's a clear right and wrong. It's it's more complex than that. So let's just pause and let me just drill this down a little bit. Very often, the debates that we have with each other about politics or ideology or cultural issues or musical styles or any number of things that we fight about or argue about in the church, oftentimes, you know, the the conversation is way more complex than we make it out to be. Now, of course, sometimes in discussions, there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong. If somebody comes to me and says, should I leave my husband for another man? I say, no, that's wrong. Somebody says, look, should I keep all the money to myself or should I share what I have with others? There's an absolute right or an absolute wrong. And so, of course, there are some issues where there's right and there's wrong. And then there's other issues that we face where actually it's not that one of us is right and the other's wrong. Sometimes we're both right. Is it personal responsibility or is it the responsibility of the community or the government? Well, maybe it's both. Is, is, the, is the issue with racism, is it personal or is it systemic and structural? Maybe it's both. I mean, maybe there's issues where, where both sides that are making a point are right and good and they need to be heard and understood. And, and what we often do, I'll just say this for me, I I have a dear friend of mine that almost every time we're around each other, it's like we launch into a debate together. And if he says, yes, I say no. If he says black, I say white. And we just move to opposite eyes and we get into the debate for the joy of the game. (laughs) But oftentimes, both of us are making points that could be construed as right. Now, of course, the inverse is also true. Uh, We could both be wrong. You know, uh, uh, Toby Keith or Garth Brooks? (laughs) Just kidding. Cats or hamsters? You know, I mean, the the answer's both right now. But but we could actually, and this is interesting, sometimes we're in a debate, and I think God would stand back and laugh at us because we are both arguing our point to the hell. We, we think we are so well-informed about an issue like immigration that is so complicated and complex, or border security, or some, some other myriad of issues that are so complicated in our, and they have such histories, and there's so many different ways of construing them. And, and, and God in heaven might look down at us and looking at us, arguing back and forth and say, you guys are both so wrong. 
But then there's other situations where we can be both right and wrong, but in different ways. And I think this is what was happening in the church in Rome. I think there were some Christians who maybe they were wrong with their idea that, you know, it was necessary to eat kosher and it was necessary to observe Sabbath, but they were right in their heart posture and their attitude because they were using those practices to honor Jesus and to please Jesus. On the other hand, there were people who maybe when it came to their opinion about days and about food, they were right, but their attitude was wrong. And the question is, is what's more important? Is it your opinion and your idea, or is it your heart and your attitude that is seeking to honor Jesus? Seems for Paul, it might be the latter and not the former, because Paul says this in verse 17. He says, look, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. He says, look, I don't really care whether or not you're eating and drinking. That's not the point anyway of the kingdom of God. And look, I don't really care whether or not you learn slightly this way or slightly that way in sort of how you imagine 21st century American politics. That's not the point of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There are priorities, people. And so he says, look, we can be both right and wrong And so the issue is more complex. And so when we make snap judgments, we oftentimes naively and in a very simplistic way think as if it's either this or that, but there's a whole bunch of issues, personal and intellectual and spiritual, that are all at play. So stop judging each other, Paul says, because that job, it's above your pay grade. The situation is way more complicated than you think. But third and finally, stop judging each other because ultimately you're going to have to give an account not for your brother or sister. You're going to have to give an account for you. So who's the person who you should be most concerned about? You. Now, it's interesting. Look at what he says back in uh, the text. In verse 10, he says this. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And so do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, here's a a situation where you have a brother or sister And maybe in their secret life, they have an arrogance and a hard-heartedness. Maybe in their secret life, they have an addiction to pornography or to pills. Or maybe in their house, nobody else sees, but they are just a mean-spirited husband or wife or brother or sister, and they're just a jerk. And yet they have all of these opinions about people in church. You have opinions about people's politics or their theology or music style or whatever. And what Jesus would say to us is, look, take the log out of your own eye before you go examining the specks in your brother's eye. Jesus even put it like this. He said, you hypocrites. He said, stop it. You know, get, deal with your own junk before you start going around pointing out the junk in other people's lives. Now, again, Jesus is not calling us to not think together or to not discuss together. Of course, we're to be thoughtful and engaged in issues. Paul talks to the churches about these issues. 
but he doesn't move to the place of condemning and judging brothers and sisters. Paul is very aware of his own issues, and so I think he moves toward others with grace, and this is what he's inviting us to do. And so he says, commit, number one, to not judge each other. Our last two points will have to move through much more quickly. Fortunately, there's not very many diagrams that I have left. But let's just move to the second two commitments. So number one is stop judging each other. Second, we need to make a commitment to look out for each other. And look at the text. It it really speaks for itself. You know, I had in the back of my mind that little incident in Genesis 4 where after Cain kills Abel, God approaches Cain and he says, Cain, where is your brother? And and Cain asks that question, am I my brother's keeper? And it's interesting because I think in this text, the answer would be, yes, actually, you are. You should take ownership of the well-being of other people around you. Now, what does that look like to look out for each other? Well, number one, it means look out for things that might be hurting other people and remove them. Remove the stumbling blocks that might destroy your brother or sister. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, therefore, do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but instead decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then in verse 20, he puts it like this. He says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother or sister to stumble. Now, in short, what he's basically saying is this. He's saying, look, there are things that might be good and okay for you to do. There might be things that you think is right and a conversation you can enter into with somebody, but if you enter into that conversation with them, it will go off the rails, and they'll be shouting, and they'll cancel you, and it'll all be over. And he says, you can think twice before you go there with them. Think twice before you do something in front of somebody else that's going to encourage them to violate their own conscience. And he's saying, take mind of your brother or sister and remove stuff that's going to hurt them. But then secondly, he says, pursue what might help them. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, and so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And then he says it again in verse 15, or in chapter 15, verse 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. You are your brother and sister's keeper. You have an obligation not to just look out for yourself But instead, let us please our neighbor for their good to build them up. And why is that? Well, because we are disciples of Jesus. We are learning how to live from the master Jesus. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus didn't assert his own rights. He didn't think only of himself. Jesus put our interests ahead of his own. And he is saying, look, this is the ethic we need to commit to in the church. Look out for the well-being of your brother or sister. Are they hurting? Where do they need help? And reach out to them. You know, very often, 
our chief concerns about our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ might be something as superficial as where they stand related to 21st century American politics. But there are much deeper and more important issues in our lives. There's what's going on in our homes, with our marriages, and, and the heartache we're experiencing, or the loneliness, or the, uh, the, uh, the emotional instability, or maybe the, 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 the issues we're having with our teenage children, and we're, we're heartbroken. And maybe there's all kinds of issues going on in our own lives, but when you stay at the issue of what do you think about American politics, you're missing the whole thing. That's not what human life consists of. I think about my friend who, this, this husband and, and my friend's best friend who are not talking with each other. Their opinions about the recall election is absolutely superfluous. It doesn't even matter. It's a flash in the pan. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And people were in California, so it doesn't really matter anyway. <laughs> what matters is your brother or sister for whom Jesus Christ died. And Jesus died for our healing and for our restoration and for our good. And if that's why he came into the world, then that's what our posture is towards each other, is to look out for each other's well-being and good. And so he says, commit yourself not only to not judging your brother or sister, but he says, commit yourself to look out for your brother or sister. And then thirdly and finally, and we'll end with this and we'll go right to the Lord's table, he says, and welcome your brother or sister. This is where he begins and ends his argument. Notice verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him or her. Welcome them in. And then he closes the argument in verse seven of chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And the whole argument in the middle really has at its heart this deep posture of hospitality and love and acceptance we are to extend to one another, especially those with whom we have differences. They don't dress like you. They don't look like you. They don't vote like you. They don't think like you. They didn't grow up in the same generation as you. And so they've got different issues than you. He says, welcome them in. You know why? Because Jesus has welcomed them in. This week, I was reading uh, this book I told you about last week called High Conflict. And they have this little uh, index in the book where the author gives a whole list of definitions to words. And she gave this definition. Uh, she, or she, she gave this little phrase. She said, paradox number three of high conflict. And listen to what she says. No one will change in the ways you want them to until they believe that you understand and accept them for who they are right now. She caveats it, and sometimes not even then. <laughs> but let me read that again. No one will change in the ways you want them to until they believe that you understand and accept them for who they are right now. What is the gospel? The gospel is not shore up your life and then you will be accepted. The gospel is God accepts you as you are by grace through faith in Jesus. And out of that deep well of acceptance and love, you can transform and change. 
And this is not just true for what God has done for us. This is true in human relationships. It's true for, for, for your kids. It's true for your roommates. It's true for your spouse. Nobody is going to change in the way that you want them to until they feel that they are understood and accepted for who they are right now. This is what Jesus did again and again and again. He welcomed all kinds of people. When the disciples came to him, did they have everything figured out intellectually or spiritually or relationally? Class? The answer is no. They were so different. They had so many different ways of expressing their faith. On the one hand, he, he invited onto his team a tax collector and then a political revolutionary on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And both were invited into the community and both were welcomed into the table with Jesus. Jesus was constantly welcoming people to sit around his table who were on opposite ends of the spectrum. Prostitutes and Pharisees sat and ate with Jesus at the same table. And when you ate with somebody in the first century, when you welcomed them to a table, you said, you are in, you are a part of my family, you belong to me, I love you, I am for you, and I'm not against you. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He's opened up his arms and he says, come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden. Come to me. Come to my table. Come and I will give you rest. And when you come and you sit at that table, the train wreck though you are, you sit down at a table full of all kinds of misfits, all kinds of people who have different stuff going on in their life. And you extend to them the same hospitality and love and kindness that God has extended to you. And this is what we need to commit to each other. This time I want to invite our band to come up. We're going to close out our time together by sharing in the Lord's Supper. This practice, on the one hand, is a practice whereby we are reminded of how we can enter into a relationship with God. It is because God has descended among us. He has come to us in Jesus through his body and blood. He has been broken. His blood has been shed so that our relationship with God can be reconciled. And if today you've walked in and you don't know whether or not you have a relationship with God, I want you to know you can enter into a relationship with God through Jesus if you just come to him. But this table not only is a table that reminds us of how we are reconciled with God through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, but when we eat this bread and we look around the room and we see people all around us eating the same bread and drinking the same cup, we are reminded that the same cross of Jesus that restores our relationship with God brings us into a new restored relationship with each other, united together around the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to get the elements ready as we sing this next song. If you didn't receive the elements when you walked in and you'd like to receive the Lord's Supper with us, would you just lift up your hand? And Kathy and Carol are walking around. They'll go ahead and serve you the Lord's Supper. But let's just pray together. Father, we ask that as once again we come to your table as broken sinners in need of grace, 
I pray, O oh God, that you would give us eyes to see our brothers and sisters around us who might differ from us as in the same boat as us. They too are broken sinners in need of your grace. And may this grace that we receive at the table unite our hearts together in love. And may you strengthen us afresh to be a community that moves out in the practice of love to one another in very practical ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.